going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful weekend and a happy St. Patrick's Day. I hope everyone listening is not too hungover at work right now. Um, I'm, I'll be completely honest, I am a bit hungover. But um, today, I wanted to talk about a topic that is really hard, or was really hard for me to collect my thoughts on. Um, it was really hard for me to gather my thoughts and, and put them into perspective. And I really want to be careful in talking about this subject because I don't want to be taken out of context when I talk about this brutal, disgusting terrorist attack that took place in New Zealand where 49, or I believe now 50 people, were murdered while in prayer at a mosque in New Zealand. This type of violence relates to many of the topics that I talk about on this show, such as identitarian politics, foreign policy, and censorship, the irrational fear of radical Islam, and many other things that I speak about. So I feel obliged to have a rational take on this and uh, not add any more confusion into what's going on right now. And I guess the first thing that you could say is that, well, Henry, you always talk about this type of topic every single day. You always bring up different drone strikes and bombings that take place in the Middle East. You always talk about mass graves where we find bodies of hundreds of Muslims buried in the sand. But um, this topic just, or this this event is just a bit different in my perspective for a couple of reasons that I want to go over. Frequent listeners are probably aware that, um, I know I've said this story multiple times, but I used to be a card-carrying Republican. Um, I used to go by the narrative that was uh, on Fox News at the time, and I'm not talking about Fox News now, I'm talking about Fox News and between 2001 to 2008, when Fox News was the uh, the media arm of the Republican War Party that really got us into all these nasty foreign escapades in the Middle East. And the reason why I bought that narrative at the time is because, well, I was in New York. I was 11 years old when 9-11 happened, and I knew people who passed away in the towers. I was lucky enough not to have any close personal friends or family members die in the towers, but I still did know people. Um, one of my neighbors died who was ele- an electrician in the towers. Um, my sister's best friend at the time, her father was a firefighter who died in the towers. So I knew people who were affected. I knew lives that were ruined because of September 11th. And I remember at that time, this this process of indoctrination taking place. So after September 11th, I remember watching footage of the planes hitting the towers over and over and over again. And uh, this is this went on for like two years of me just watching this, the most awful terrorist attack in American history just play off over and over and over again. And at the same time, while watching, and not just Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, pretty much all the major news networks were were guilty of this, um, they were showing 
Muslims celebrating in the Middle East over and over and over again. They were showing um, hordes of people burning American flags. They were showing people idolizing the architects of 9-11. You know, they were burning pictures of George Bush. And the narrative at the time was they hate us for our freedoms. It's this clash of civilizations that's taking place right now. And they hate us because we're white Christians and we have things like democracy and PlayStation and McDonald's and movies. That was a narrative that was served to us. And when you're young and impressionable and you don't know anything, and believe me, I knew nothing about the Middle East when I was a young kid. Um, the only thing I knew about the Middle East was that it was a desert. The pyramids may have been there. And uh, the Indiana Jones movies took place somewhere in the Middle East. Well, in Egypt, which is not technically the Middle East. But because of the way the media portrayed the Muslim world when I was younger, when the U.S. decided that they wanted to invade Iraq, it was a very easy sale. It was an easy sell because of the different tricks that they would use, of course. One being that every single time that they said the, the name Osama bin Laden, they would say the name Saddam Hussein right after it. So Saddam Hussein would then become complicit within 9-11. And, of course, the lie about the, mass destruction, the, the weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein had in his arsenal. And how on earth... Could we allow a Muslim to have a weapon of mass destruction? He'll use it to kill us all. So, of course, that was a very easy sell. As I got older and I started to read more, and actually, my interest in the Middle East comes from my interest in World War I. Um, I am a World War I buff. I love, I love studying World War I. It's probably the most interesting topic in the world to me. But I became interested in the Middle East because in world, it was during World War I when the Middle East or the modern Middle East as we know it was created. So my love and my interest for the Middle East actually extends from there. So the first book that I read that really got me interested in the Middle East was uh, A Peace to End All Peace uh, by David Frompkin. And uh, the book is about the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East. And what I learned from that book is that the Arabs were really screwed over by the British and the French. And I started to develop a lot more sympathy for Arabs in the Middle East. Um, I then went in to read about the Arab Empire, and I learned something that, that is not really taught. The Arab Empire was actually extremely tolerant towards other religions. And let's just put it this way. It was much better to be a, a Jew in the Arab Empire than to be a Jew in Europe. Let's just put it that way. They were way more tolerant than the Christian counterparts in Europe when it came to religion, when it came to uh, practicing your own religion. So with this knowledge, when the debate came up again, and I think the debate, it never went away after 9-11, you know, the debate on the clash of civilizations, can the Western world and the Muslim world exist together? That debate started to pick up again around 2015, specifically after the Paris attacks. But this time, the debate wasn't spearheaded 
only by the mainstream right. It was also spearheaded by this the new wave atheist movement, like Sam Harris types. And, um, you know, they who are, I'll just say, very anti-religion um, started saying that, their, or their arguments were that because of the Quran, Muslims will never be able to associate or never be able to assimilate into the Western world. So you saw this coalition of the, I don't want to say classical liberal types, but the uh, New Age atheists plus the the uh, intellectual dark web combined with that right-wing populist movement to promulgate a message of, oh no, they're clash, the, you know, the European migrant crisis is going to bring doom to the world. We can't live with these people. They're all crazy. It's radical Islam. And radical Islam is something so vague, and it sounds scary enough, where it can't be reasoned with. But what these people failed with their arguments is that they never pointed out the difference between radical Islam and the version of Islam that the majority of Muslims in this world practice, which is not violent. They may be conservative. They may not believe in things like gay marriage or, or things like that. But the majority of the Muslim world does not subscribe to radical jihadist Islam like they do in Saudi Arabia. And what's really funny is that our allies are the ones who practice that form of Islam where women are basically slaves, where you can be stoned to death for adultery, where you can be beheaded for crimes in public. Most of the Muslim world doesn't practice that. And yet they're always conflating Wahhabi Islam with Islam in general. And yet they don't even understand that the CIA fostered these madrasas and put these religious fanatics in charge as a bulwark against the atheist communist. These bad groups like Al-Qaeda, like ISIS, like Al-Nusra, like Ar al sham like Saudi Arabia, they're our own Frankenstein. And the main victim of Wahhabi Islam are other Muslims. They're Shiites and moderate Sunnis. They're the ones who are being raided by these terrible groups. They're the ones who are being forced to go through female genital mutilation. They're the ones who are being brutally raped. They're the ones who are having their heads cut off. They're the ones who have their organs eaten. They're the ones who are put in cages and sold as sex slaves. Those are the ones, those are the people who suffer the most from radical Islam. And in addition to that, these people also have to suffer from drone strikes and bombings and white phosphorus over villages. So these are the people who are suffering. <laughs> it's the Muslims. And you have to ask yourself, because of this violence, because of the constant warfare, why are these people migrating to other countries? Why are these people being radicalized? These other people are being radicalized. It's not because of the Quran. A lot of it has to do with blowback. It's called insurgent math. And if you guys know what insurgent math is, it's basically you kill one terrorist, you create, you create five more. The more that you do, 
the more acts of violence that you commit, the more blowback that you will receive in the future. And you have to think these awful terrorist attacks that took place in Paris and London and Stockholm, maybe they were because of blowback. So something I found most disturbing about this terrorist attack in New Zealand is that in this guy's manifesto, and I didn't have a chance to read it, I couldn't find it anyway, anywhere, I only really saw the reports on the manifesto. But something I found really disturbing about it was that the death or the terrorist attack in Stockholm in 2017 when a jihadist terrorist hijacked a truck and drove into a crowd of people in Stockholm and killed five people. Um, I believe the youngest victim was an 11-year-old girl named uh, Ebba Eckerland, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name, was one of the motivations for the attack, this terrorist attack in New Zealand. And of course it was wrong to hijack a truck and drive it into a crowd of people, killing five people. But the victims of that, of that attack never asked for vengeance. In fact, the parents of the youngest victim were horrified by your actions. So in addition to murdering 50 innocent people and destroying countless families, all you've done is just add another tragic chapter in the lives of the mourning family members of the people killed in Stockholm. When you collectively take revenge on a category of people, you are equivalent to the terrorists that you condemn. And the real tragedy here is that these attacks are preventable. Not by gun regulation, not by censorship, not by banning Mein Kampf, not by kicking Dennis Prager off of Twitter. These attacks are preventable by just having open discussion. We need to be able to subdue these ideologies before they become dogma. Because the natural conclusion of identity politics is conflict, revenge killing, and just endless cycles of violence. Because when one group collectively hurts another group, it causes the other side to collectively condemn them. When you break everything down to religious and ethnic categories, you create the atmosphere for sectarian and racial violence. Most people in this world, so Christians, Muslims, Jews, Europeans, Africans, Arabs, Asians, they don't want to live in a world where they need to expect the next attack. Like People don't want to live in a world where revenge killing is a normal part of society. Because in that reality, the violent death of a loved one is much more likely. I really think the reason that these things happen is because the discussion on the danger of identity politics can't take place in the public forum. These young men who typically don't have any accomplishments to their name, who don't have any fulfilling relationships with the opposite sex, who can't take pride of who they are as an individual and subscribe to white identity politics because, well, I have nothing else going on, but at least I can be proud of my race. We all know that white people invented the modern world. So because of the color of my skin, I deserve to be recognized for that. And these people, they feel that there's a white genocide taking place, that their culture and identity are being taken away. And this person wasn't crazy. This person knew exactly what he was doing. This wasn't a case of some white guy just snapped and lost it. And I understand the criticism that's coming on from the, the Muslim community. 
You know, they say that every time a Muslim commits an act of terror, it's because of Islam. And when a white person does it, it's just because he's crazy. And I think they're correct in pointing that out. This terrorist attack in New Zealand is a product of years of living in an echo chamber without any type of opposition, without any type of counter argument to their ideology. And I can only think if someone were able to reach this person and convince them that his narrative was wrong, that maybe crimes like this can be avoided. But the big problem is, is that you can't associate with these people. Because if you do, you're just as guilty of racism as them. If you just associate with these people. And all we do, all people do is they just disregard these people who are clearly lost and just yell racism and Nazi and all this stuff and kind of just push them out of the conversation. Like telling these people that they're just racist is not going to give them answers. It's not going to convince them that their biological category doesn't make them superior in some way. It's not going to convince them that there isn't a systematic white genocide taking place. It's not going to change their mind. It's not going to pull them out of this dogmatic thought about white supremacy and about white nationalism. So there needs to be a public forum for rational actors to reach these people who are just completely lost. Because if you censor someone and just prevent them from distributing their ideas, if they have no voice to reach the public, that doesn't make the ideas go away. What happens is that these people feel so voiceless that they band together and they create a black market of ideas that just lives on the fringes of the conversation. And they just end up trading ideas with only others who have been banned and censored for the same beliefs. And because there's no diversity of opinion in these circles, these echo chambers are created. You know, places where people get together and yearn for the good old days of when Western countries were predominantly white, where you can share your grievances about the changing demographics in your country, how the influx of immigrants coming in are inferior due to their low IQs, um, which allows them to create the, the backward governing system called Islam, which is so toxic that it will destroy Western society as we know it. Now the accomplishments of the Europeans will be lost and forgotten. The whites will become slaves. That we need to preserve Western civilization. If you don't think that these conversations are taking place, then you're kidding yourself. They are. If you don't think that the alt-right does exist or this militant bad version of white supremacy exists, then you are fucking kidding yourself. It does. And being in this political world, I was ignorant to it as well. I had I thought it was a myth. I thought maybe there was 5,000 of these guys in the world at most who were militant white nationalists like this. But when I engaged myself into the political world, and I'm mainly on the right-wing side of the world, is who I mainly associate with. I mean, I collaborate with a lot of progressives and all of that stuff, but it does exist. It does and these people have no opposition. There's no one talking sense to them. There's no one who's, who's 
There, there's no one like presenting a different argument or giving them answers to things like demographic changes, things like you know why there's such an influx of immigrant uh, immigrants and, and Muslims coming into their societies. Uh, no one's giving them answers, and no one's telling them, talking through the history of Islam in the Arab world. You know, no one's relating this to our own foreign policy. The reason why there's so many migrants is because there's so many wars in the Middle East. There's nobody giving these people these answers, and it turns into extreme dogmatic hate at the end of the day. You are not a racial category. You are not a religious category. You are an individual. You cannot take pride from the accomplishments of the same ethnic group as you. Because that wasn't you. You're not the person who started the Industrial Revolution. You're not John Locke. You're not Adam Smith. Those people were able to do the things that they were able to do because of the countries that they lived under, under the, the society and culture they lived under. It wasn't because of their racial makeup. It wasn't because of their white skin they were able to come up with these ideas. Policies, economic policies mostly, is the reason why development takes place. But when you don't, when you live in an echo chamber, you're not hearing that message. It all just comes down to looking up, uh, you look up statistics and you show, well, look, look, uh, African countries have lower IQs on average. So that's why they're inferior. That's why they're third world countries. That's why they're poor because of their IQ levels. And us white people, we're much smarter. There's no opposition to that. And there's no one in these circles saying, hey, listen, yeah, the industrial revolution started in Europe. However, the scientific capitals of the world changed over time. Before it was in Europe, it was in Baghdad. Before it was in Baghdad, it was in Egypt. It was in, it was, there, the scientific capital of the world changes over time. And when you look at the Arab world a thousand years ago, it was more advanced than the Christian world from a thousand years ago. While there was scientific discovery going on in Baghdad, the Europeans were castle raiding. Civilization started in Mesopotamia and Egypt. So these people just look at statistics and they 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 just show it to their their buddies and they they there's nothing there's there's no talking to them because if you do if you do try to engage with these people, you are just one of them. Look at Sargon of Akkad, who was just kicked off Patreon for arguing with someone from the alt-right, and he just used wrong language. So we can't reach these people. We can't pull them out. We can't persuade them. The only thing that we can do, or the only thing that we're allowed to do, is condemn them as Nazis. That will not change them. Like, what is better to convince them that they're wrong or to just completely ostracize them and completely make them voiceless. Because this was a person, the person who did this terrible attack, and I don't believe in saying the name of someone who does a terrorist attack. I, I subscribe to that thought. This was someone who clearly wanted to get a message out. He wrote a manifesto. And what better way to get attention to your message than having a live stream event of yourself shooting people? 
This person knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to get his point across in the loudest possible way. It wasn't a case of just somebody snapping. So, we need to have more conversations. We need to make sure that we're arguing with these people and presenting arguments to people who may be on the fringes because it is better to convince them otherwise that that their opinions are wrong than to just have them go into the corners and create these circles where all they do is just, well, we can look at the science together. We're smart. Us, we're white. Uh, that, that, there's, no, there's no one telling them otherwise because the only other arguments are you are racist. You're racist. Wrong think. And people like myself, I would love to like debate these people, but like I don't want to associate with the alt-right at all because I don't want to be mis I don't want to be misrepresented as somebody who collaborates with the alt-right because I am like I I'm it's it's ridiculous. And I think the censorship really contributes to all this taking place. Now, if you go look at the mainstream media and uh, you look at Aaron Burnett and how uh, she spends this story on CNN, well, it's all of uh, it's all Trump's doing. Trump inspires this white national, this this global white nationalism. So uh, let me play this. And tonight, President Trump's response was to minimize the issue of white nationalism. We see today white nationalism as a rising threat around the world. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. A dismissive answer on a day when 49 people were gunned down by an alleged white nationalist. The president had an opportunity to denounce white nationalism there loudly, clearly, with the emotion it deserved on a day like this. Something that should be easy and is important to hear from the president of the United States. After all, the suspected New Zealand shooter praised Trump in his 87-page manifesto as a, quote, symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. But it wasn't just the president's dismissal of white nationalism that was so jarring during his 27-minute appearance to talk about his wall today. It was his embrace of the same word the suspected shooter used in his manifesto when ranting against immigrants. That word is invade. It's a word Trump used today to talk about immigrants on the U.S. southern border. All right. So her narrative is that Trump inspires this type of hatred. Well, maybe you can make some type of argument on that. But I just really find it funny that this is CNN's take. This is Aaron Burnett's take. And she uses the word invade. But you need to listen to this broadcast. This was in December when Trump announced that he wanted to pull troops out of Syria. This was CNN's take. And there's a reason why I'm playing both of these at the same time from back, back to back. Out front tonight, President Trump kowtowing to Vladimir Putin, giving Putin exactly what he wants in two major ways. First, lifting sanctions off two big Russian firms. And second, announcing that he's going to pull American troops out of Syria, something Putin wants more than almost any other thing. It could not get better for Putin today. So the take is, is that we need to stay in the Middle East and Trump is fucking crazy for wanting to pull out of there, even though a lot of these wars is the reason why there is a migrant crisis to begin with, why there is a clash of civilizations taking place. But Aaron Burnett and CNN, well, why do you want to pull out? Why do you want to pull out of the Middle East? This is where I'm going with it, obviously. 
and Trump in a new White House video tonight sticking by his Syria announcement. And he did it on a video. He's, he, he didn't come out and speak to the nation. He didn't answer questions on the decision. He's not answering questions from Congress. No, he hid away and put out a little video. Here's a clip. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land. And now it's time for our troops to come back home. Okay, well, he can say it as much as he wants to say it. But again, he said that without taking questions from anyone or talking to anybody because he didn't want to answer the questions. And his own party is livid. Now we're dramatically less safe. This is an Obama-like move. It's a terrible mistake, and, and unfortunately, I think we're going to pay a price for it if, if it's not reversed. I doubt there's anybody in the Republican caucus in the Senate that just isn't stunned by this precipitous decision that just like you woke up in the morning and made it. That shock and anger again from his own party, coming in response to Trump's Twitter announcement that he's going to withdraw those U.S. troops fighting ISIS in Syria. So the original tweet this morning, quote, and, and to announce, we have defeated ISIS in Syria. My only reason for being there during the Trump presidency. Let's just be clear. He announced that he's pulling U.S. troops out via tweet. How dare he announce that he's pulling out via tweet? You're supposed to go George Bush style and announce it on an aircraft carrier and say mission accomplished. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who fought in the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan, rep responded to the president's tweet, quote, this is simply not true. In fact, a Middle Eastern leader in the midst of this fight recently told me this summer that Islamic terror groups, including al-Qaeda, are regrouping and rebuilding, something the president's own special envoy for the global coalition to defeat ISIS was extremely clear about just last week. You've got to listen to this. Nobody is declaring a mission accomplished. Obviously, it would be reckless if we were just to say, well, the physical caliphate is defeated, so we can just leave now. I think anyone who's looked at a conflict like this would agree with that. Worth stopping here, to be clear, that Brett McGurk, you just saw there, is the person whose job title in the Trump administration includes the words defeat ISIS. But while at home, the president's move was met with anger, Putin celebrated you know, of course, Putin has been fighting against the United States and Syria and with U.S. rivals, including President Trump's boogeyman, Iran. So this was a report that was basically criticizing Donald Trump for leaving Syria and saying how it empowers Iran as well as Russia. And this is the same type of reporting that tries to promulgate the message that we need to be engaged in these wars in the Middle East. And what's really scary with this type of reporting that's gone on over the many, many years over the last 20 years has been that they, you can just tell there's no under, fundamental understanding why there's things like a migrant crisis taking place because of the wars, because of the wars. And it's like at the same time, you know, you, you, you chastise and you condemn Donald Trump for his like populist rhetoric but at the same time that you're pushing for these wars that are causing the migrant crisis and that are killing actual Muslims in the Middle East where most Muslims die, it's just the inconsistent type of reporting that we are going to have going forward with this crisis. And it's really sad that the conversation will go as a as a it will be a critique on Trump's language and rhetoric rather than the critique on censorship and the critique on on the foreign escapades that are causing the clash of civilizations to happen. All right. 
I think I got to wrap this one up. This is going to be a short episode. Uh, tonight, I will be seeing, uh, I will be at the Soho Forum for anyone who is located in New York. Um, I'm actually going to be seeing Danny Jerson. Uh, Danny Jerson's been on the show. He uh, discussed his experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he is a progressive vet who is very anti-war, and he's going to be debating Israel-Palestine, um, taking the Palestinian side. So um, anyone who hears this, uh, I don't know, try to get tickets at the Soho Forum. I'll be there tonight, and uh, it should be pretty fun. I'm, I'm actually thrilled to meet Danny Jerson. Um, I believe he might be recently retired from the military, but I'm uh, very thrilled to speak to him. I encourage you to check out that episode as well. Um, thanks a lot for joining me today for another episode of Bro History. Sorry this had to be shorter, but I kind of got wrapped up over the weekend, so I couldn't prepare as much. And I really wanted to just concentrate on making sure that my thoughts and the words that I spoke about New Zealand were in good context and, and at, at the very least made people think further about it, about the things that I'm concerned about, which is censorship and things like that and foreign escapades. So um, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, please rate and review the podcast. That always helps us out a ton. Um, rate it on iTunes. If you're on Apple, save it and share it if you're on Spotify. And um, I love you guys. I love all of you guys. And uh, take care. And uh, we'll be back to you or, uh, later this week. <laughs>